Welcome to the Farming Your Career podcast with host Dr. Aaron L. Albert, where we explore a variety of healthcare and pharmacy related topics, including career development, healthcare IT, informatics, innovation, entrepreneurship, STEM, women's issues, and more. Farming Your Career podcast is part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, and Aaron has had the number one most downloaded episodes of 2016 and 2017 of the entire Pharmacy Podcast Network. Now, here's your host, Dr. Aaron L. Albert. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast. I'm your host of Farming Your Career, Dr. Aaron L. Albert. Today, we're going to divert a little bit from farming one's career. We're going to talk a little bit more about something that I've seen a lot and heard a lot about in continuing education realms and the literature of late, and that's on DEA and controlled substance quotas that seems to be all over the news these days. Of course, is it tied to the opioid crisis? And of course, when we're talking Talking about this type of subject matter in the DEA, we had to bring back our friend to the pharmacy podcast, Mr. Joseph T. Ranazizi. Of course, he was part of the Office of Diversion Control when he retired from DEA a few years ago. And of course, we also have to give you the disclaimer up front. This is not legal advice that we're providing today in this conversation or this podcast. Of course, it's not medical advice either. There is no attorney-client privilege here that we're building in. And of course, if you have a situation that's specific to you in controlled substances, talk to a lawyer, hopefully in your own jurisdiction, and they can help you. So with that, let's get into it. Mr. Joseph T. Ranazizi and our conversation today on DEA and controlled substance quotas. This is Joe Ranazizi from Due Diligence Compliance, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Well, we're here with Mr. Joe Ranazizi. Joe, welcome back to the Pharmacy Podcast. Good afternoon. So uh, we wanted to have you come back because right now a hot topic that's happening in the pharmacy literature and the pharmacy law world is DEA and quotas around controlled substances. But we're going to get into that here in a minute. I thought I'd start with a question about your work that you did on 60 Minutes and the agency itself, uh, DEA, having some congressional intervention and uh, having some challenges within the agency to uh, enforce the Controlled Substances Act. I didn't know if you wanted to comment on that before we got into the quotas uh, Q&A. Well, sure. Uh, the, the Congress passed the Insuring Patient Access, an effective drug control Drug Enforcement Control Act of 2016, uh, and what it basically did was it, it restricted DEA from doing several things administratively, uh, the most important being the issuance of an immediate suspension order. Um, now, the, the biggest problem with that is, one, DEA was using the the uh, immediate suspension order fairly judiciously. We weren't doing it uh, in excess. We were doing it for the most egregious cases of violation and uh, where there was an imminent threat to public health and safety. And what Congress did was change the law so it would only affect pharmacies and doctors, but it protected everybody upstream from pharmacies and doctors. So the way it was written 
the whole chain would be liable for violations. Um, the way it's now written under the new law, uh, if you're a wholesaler, manufacturer, distributor, uh, you're protected. You, you, the chances of you uh, being served with an immediate suspension order or immediately suspending your ability to, to, transact, to do transactions and control substances is virtually impossible. Um, why they did that uh, during a time of, of uh, opioid overdose and an opioid epidemic uh, is just mind-boggling. Now, Congress said they were going to look at the bill, and indeed they are looking at the bill, but all indications are uh, they're just changing words within the statute at least that's what it looks like they're going to do, uh, which won't do anything to uh, help DEA going after those upstream violators. Uh, and, and that's a shame because everybody in the distribution chain has a requirement to maintain effective controls against diversion. And if they're not following the law, if they're not following the regulations and they're in violation – and they are allowing millions and millions of tablets of opioid to be diverted. Uh, they should be held accountable for that. Uh, I'm hoping that Congress does the right thing and does a full repeal of the act. However, I, I, just, um, I just don't see it happening anytime soon. Uh, not in this Washington, anyway. Well, and to be fair, at the time of this recording, we were recording during the first week of March. Um, there may be a lag between the actual posting of this podcast versus the point in time where we're recording. So I just wanted to put that disclaimer out there as well. I'm sure there's going to be a lot more information coming soon on that particular issue. So thank you for bringing us up to speed on that, Mr. Ranazizi, we appreciate it. But the bulk of what we wanna to discuss today is really focused on DEA and how they go about creating quotas. What is this process? What's the law behind it? And so I think the first question I wanna start with is, you know, there seems to be some confusion out there regarding controlled substance quotas. So where did quotas even come from and what's the history behind them? Well, quotas, the, the ability to establish an aggregate production quota uh, is statutory. It was, it was created within the Controlled Substances Act, at the beginning of the Controlled Substances Act in the early 70s. So it's been around for uh, the length of the Controlled Substances Act. It's found in 21 U.S.C. 826 of the Controlled Substances Act. And the regulations, uh, 21 CFR 1303, um, it basically gives the Attorney General the authority to establish aggregate production quotas, and that responsibility is subsequently delegated to DEA. Um, it requires the quota to be established uh, for each basic class of drug. Now, when you say, well, what's a basic class? Hydrocodone would be a basic class. Oxycodone would be a basic class. Oxymorphone is a basic class. So each one of those basic classes has an aggregate production quota attached to it. And what that agri-production quota does is establishes 
the amount of drug necessary within that basic class uh, to provide for the estimated medical, scientific, industrial needs of the United States and research needs of the United States, as well as for lawful export and reserve stocks. Now, the agri-production quota is a limit. It's the limit, the maximum you could make in the United States during one year. And the creation or the establishment of these quotas basically a scientific and mathematical exercise, and it's done by DEA scientists. Um, it's, it's, it's a give and take. They look at what the companies request, and then based on justification and based on the information we have, a quota set. And, you know, the, one of the biggest problems with quotas are we're operating under a law and regulations that were written in the early 70s when there wasn't a large number of manufacturers or drug or opioids, for instance. Um, today, they do thousands of quotas uh, in, in a year's time, and they have many, many manufacturers. Way back in the early 70s, there was a few manufacturers and, and a few quotas. So the time has changed. The, the volume of drug has changed. However, the regulations and the statutes have re- remained virtually the same. So. Okay. Well, thank you for that kind of basic overview. But let's go behind the curtain, if you will, and talk a little bit about how DEA itself goes through the quota process. To start off, there's an agri-production quota. As I said, the agri-production quota is the total amount or the maximum amount in a basic class that could be established in the United States. Um, The CSA specifically prohibits the Drug Enforcement Administration from establishing quota based on individual an individual drug or dosage form. For instance, uh, we can't establish a quota based on a 10 milligram tablet or a 5 milligram tablet by a certain brand or generic company. It's got to be for the whole basic class. Okay, DEA has no authority to require a manufacturer to ma- to manufacture a specific drug. Uh, once the quota is issued, DEA's authority is limited at that point. And the manufacturer could pretty much do whatever they want to do with the quota that's been granted to them. Uh, the proposed annual quotas are, are uh, published in the Federal Register. The public has an opportunity to comment on the quota. Once the comments are reviewed and analyzed, a final aggregate production quota for each individual, for each individual basic class is published. And at that point in time, the manufacturers draw from that quota. Now, in addition to the agri-production quota, there's two other types of quotas. One is an individual manufacturing quota, and the third is the procurement quota. A manufacturing quota is the amount of drug that is allotted to each manufacturer, and they draw from the agri-production quota. Think of the agri-production quota as a pie. And each individual raw material manufacturer draws from that pie. And when you look at all of the manufacturers together, they cannot exceed the amount that's established as the aggregate production quota for the United States. Now, 
The procurement quota is given to dosage form manufacturers. Those dosage form manufacturers draw from the raw material manufacturers through a procurement quota, and they obtain that raw material, the active pharmaceutical ingredient that's utilized to make each individual uh, dosage form. Okay, so <clears throat> all of these drug, all of these quotas operate in concert with each other. Now, once the API is supplied downstream to the dosage form manufacturers, dosage form manufacturers make their drug. Those drugs end up in pharmacies, doctors' offices, clinics, hospitals, and the like, and then they're dispensed to the patient. I, I think that pretty well covers it. Um, the only thing that you have to really understand about quotas is the vast majority of quota is driven by prescriptions. They're driven by the amount of drug that actually goes into the hands of the patient. Okay. Now, when we look at quota, we look at all, all different things that contribute to quota. For instance, we look at ARCOS, the Automation of Reports and Consolidated Order System, to see how much drug is in the pipeline, how much drug is going downstream and where it's going. We also look at aggregators data, data that, that on dispensing, how many prescriptions are written for a particular basic class of drug, and how much has actually gone out of pharmacies and out of hospitals into patients' hands. We look at manufacturing how much waste do these people have? Uh, do these companies have? How much are they wasting? How much are they destroying? How much is the manufacturing process uh, wasting? What is their yield? We look at what their inventory position is. We look at so many different things before we attach a quota to a basic class. But in the end, in the end, the the most important thing is how much drug is actually going out and into the hands of the patient, the prescription records. The, a large amount of quota is determined by prescriptions dispensed to the patient. So all those other things like product development, validation studies, stability studies, exports, yield, all of that's important, but the vast majority of the quota is based on prescriptions. And so when people say, you know, you need to cut the quota, you have to understand that the only way that quota, quota could be cut is if prescriptions are decreased, the amount of drug going into patients' hands is decreased. So I guess that, that lies at the $64,000 question, if you will, about this whole argument around quotas and DEA. So if prescription demand drives supply for quotas, could DEA just simply cut supply in order to curb the opioid epidemic in the U.S. through the quota system? See, and that's that's a great question. And I've heard that all the time, that, that, that uh, well, DEA should just cut the quota. If DEA cuts the quota, we won't have an opioid epidemic. And the answer to that is you know, just basically no. The only way, as I said, the only way that quota will ever be decreased is by a decrease in the actual number of, number of prescriptions to dispensed, or to a much lesser extent, if if uh, we 
cut or reduce research in the United States, validation, re, uh, dosage form research. Uh, but other than that, you have to have a decrease in prescriptions for quota to be decreased. It's the only true way of decreasing quota. Now, the only way for prescriptions to decrease is by changing prescribing behavior. Prescribing behavior drives the amount of prescriptions dispensed. Okay, now, I've, oh, I keep reading about the simple way of just cutting quota and, and this gospel of quota reduction as a silver bullet to fight the opioid epidemic is, is, is just blatantly wrong. Okay, I think that some of this is based on misinformation or a misunderstanding, okay? But you can't fix an epidemic that's risen to the level that it has in a 20-year period uh, overnight. And quota is definitely, definitely not the silver bullet to fix the problem. I just wanted to illustrate uh, quota as a – think of it as this pie again. Okay. Okay. So you have a quota at 100%. That's the pie. Now, if everybody is eating from this pie, if everybody's eating a piece of this pie, that's great. And we have the same amount of people eating this 100%, and everybody's going to get their share. But now, if I cut that pie by 20%, you're still going to have the same amount of people going after that pie, okay? That means legitimate patients, overprescribed patients, and outright patients who are just drug seekers uh, with potential criminal behavior. Those are the people that are still competing for that amount of drug, but now it's 20% less. Well, the quota was established to handle that full amount of patient because that's what the prescriptions told us the quota should be. If we cut it by 20%, but you don't change prescribing behavior, you're still, you still have the same amount of patients. And if the same amount of patients is going after that reduced amount of quota, somebody's not going to get their, pay, their, their drug. Now, if it's a, a drug seeker who's selling it or, or using it for uh, reasons other than medical care, well, no one really cares. But what if it's a patient in palliative care or end-of-life care? What if it's an oncology patient or a hospice patient and they can't get their drug because we cut the quota by 20% without cutting the number of prescriptions or the number of people looking at or trying to get the drug? Somebody's not going to get their drug. And if it's one of those patients, a true patient, a palliative care patient, end-of-life care, oncology patient, or a hospice patient, then we haven't done our job under 826, and the patient will not be served appropriately. Uh, that would be a shame. That would be a shame. So this idea that we could just cut quota is, is just not correct. And it could present a problem to a legitimate patient that needs that type of medication. Okay. A shortage does nothing but hurt true patients. It doesn't do anything 
to the drug seeker, but it does hurt true patients. Well, and correct me if I'm wrong. I know we talked a little bit off uh, recording about this, but under 21 U.S.C. Section 826, isn't the DEA required to provide quota for enough drug to meet, again, the medical, scientific, industrial, and research needs of the country? Yeah, as I said earlier, the 826 requires the Drug Enforcement Administration to set a quota that will provide for the legitimate medical, scientific, industrial, and research needs of the country in addition to export, lawful export, and inventory position. So if DEA doesn't set the quota appropriately, in addition to a patient care problem, the agency's in violation of 826. But, you know, in violation of 826 is important. The agency never wants to do that. But more importantly, the agency never wants a true patient to go without medication. And if that happens, shame on the agency. Uh, it shouldn't happen. And uh, the agency has to follow 826. And by the way, everything we talk about is in 826. When we talk about looking at validation and research and disposal, net disposal, inventory position, Congress outlined in 826 what the Drug Enforcement Administration must look at to set quota. Okay, so we're just not making up the procedures and policies on how to set quota, it's within the statute. Congress gave us that roadmap to set a quota. Okay, so let's think pragmatically here for our, our pharmacist listeners here who may not be as familiar with the quota process. Can you give us an example of a natural quota decrease if we can't just go cut it by 20%, for example? Give us an example of how it naturally has decreased. Oh, sure. That, that's... Uh, it's a great question, and I, I can give you a perfect example. Um, I know many pharmacists listening to this podcast will remember the rescheduling of hydrocodone. Uh, I think we all know that up until 2014, hydrocodone was the number one prescribed drug in the United States of all drugs, regardless of non-control or control status. It was the number one prescribed drug in the United States. Um, we had a problem with hydrocodone. Hydrocodone was driving a lot of the opioid epidemic at the time uh, because people were starting on hydrocodone So because it, it was so readily available. And it was almost equipotent to oxycodone. Um, we got to a point where we had to do something, and a rescheduling action seemed like the most logical thing to do. Now, it had been mired in, in rescheduling for well over 10 years, we finally got approval to move forward with the rescheduling action, moving it from Schedule 3, the combination product, from Schedule 3 into Schedule 2, where the single-entity hydrocodone uh, was. When we did that, we knew that there was going to be a prescribing behavior change. Why? Because there was no more refills. You had to do a written prescription. You couldn't call that prescription in. And it also gave doctors... Uh, an idea that they needed to step back and look at hydrocodone. It was placed in there because it, it closely matched other Schedule II products, and it really was misscheduled in Schedule Three. So after hydrocodone was rescheduled, we saw a dramatic decrease in the number of prescriptions. Why? Because prescribing behavior was changed. We didn't see dentists uh, writing prescriptions for uh 
40 hydrocodone tablets for dental pain uh, with a refill or two. We didn't see GPs starting to crank out hydrocodone uh, prescriptions uh, for muscle strains and back pain and things like that. We saw a massive decrease in the amount of prescriptions. And what happened to that quota? Well, we had somewhere in the neighborhood of We'll say in two years, you know, a little over a thirty percent decrease in quota, and we had almost a car uh, a thirty percent decrease in prescriptions, and we had almost a corresponding decrease in quota. See, as the prescriptions went down, the quota naturally decreased, and that's natural decrease in quota. That's exactly how the quota process is supposed to work. When prescriptions start decreasing. That means the patient population is decreasing, and then the quota will decrease. The amount of prescriptions will decrease, and the quota will decrease. That's how it works. That's how Congress set it up to work. So this idea that we could just go in and just slash quota without slashing prescribing behavior, without slashing the amount of prescriptions, is a recipe for a disaster, and nothing more than that. Okay. Well, thank you for the real world example within hydrocodone. And I remember that day specifically when uh, the schedule changed. So great example. But again, if we can't just go slashing quota, we know that, you know, rescheduling is a methodology to reduce the number of prescriptions. What else can states do out there to kind of curb overuse of opioids? Well, I think that the states have a pretty good grasp of how to do that, and they're starting to employ. Well, you, some states are employing a dosage, uh, the amount of days that a patient could be on a particular opioid. Uh, some states are employing the mandatory use of prescription drug monitoring programs. So if a doctor is going to prescribe an opioid, prior to prescribing that opioid, he must look at the patient's PDMP data to see if that patient is getting a similar drug or the same drug from multiple doctors or what other controlled substances that patient is getting. Uh, that has started to decrease, uh, decrease prescriptions in other states, in, in states that employ that method. And it, it's also rise, uh, raising awareness the doctor's point of view on what their patients are doing. Uh, it should be used as another diagnostic test. You've got to know what your patients are doing outside of your care, and this is the best way to do it. Uh, another way is prescription chronic pain guidelines for prescribing opioids. Uh, some of the states have employed mandated uh, chronic pain guidelines for, prescri for prescribing opioids and have set limits. So if your patient is, is approaching or going over a certain amount of morphine equivalents, that patient's got to be referred to a specialist who could look at your therapy, look at what he's doing on the opioid, and then make corrections on it if need be, if necessary. So all those things will ultimately change prescribing behavior. And I think that the states are on the right track. The, the states have really taken the lead uh, from the federal government, and they're doing a remarkable job. Uh, and I, I just hope the states keep the pressure on because in the end, the states are the ones that
that are reeling from this problem, not the federal government. The states are reeling from this problem. Yeah, and we'll link up in the show notes um, the CDC's guidelines as well for prescribing opioids and chronic pain, because I know several states have kind of used that guideline as the backbone for putting together um, their own guidelines in uh, chronic pain patients and um, state law changes around opioid use. Okay, well, we've talked a lot about quotas here today, Mr. Anazizi, and of course, I'm sure there's a lot more details surrounding quotas overall, how to administer them, etc. But our listeners are primarily pharmacists practicing in the trenches, as well as healthcare professionals and people within the pharmaceutical industry. So what's the take home message that you'd like to leave with our audience and listeners regarding quotas and the opioid crisis overall? First of all, quotas are not an enforcement tool, okay? It's a regulatory function, and it can't stop the opioid epidemic. Quotas have nothing to do with the actual amount of drug going to individuals who are seeking drugs for non-medical use. But if the quota is reduced without a reduction in the demand, the number of prescriptions, there's going to be a shortage. And the only way we'll decrease the amount of drug in the market for illicit use is to get back to the basics of our regulatory control structure. That means that everybody in that supply chain is going to have to be aware and be cognizant of their legal responsibilities. Okay, The states have to continue to modify their practice guidelines and provide updated guidance uh, to their prescribers and their pharmacists uh, to ensure that they understand what's going on and the trends in their particular areas. But it comes down to everybody's legal obligations on the supply chain. For instance, medical care providers, the people who are prescribing, they must ensure that every prescription that's given to a patient is for a legitimate medical purpose in the usual course of professional practice. Pharmacists must look at each one of those prescriptions and do an analysis, a corresponding uh, responsibility, a red flags analysis to ensure that that patient, that prescription that's presented by that patient is effective and valid. What does that mean? Well, a pharmacist has to resolve all of these red flags before dispensing. And if he can't resolve before dispensing, he can't dispense. What about manufacturers, wholesalers, and distributors? They have the same requirements if they're distributing drugs downstream. They must maintain effective controls against diversion like everyone else in the supply chain. Their responsibility is to provide due diligence on their customers to make sure what their customers are doing with the drug has nothing to do with diversion of that drug. That means they have to know their customer. They must file suspicious orders when received. What's a suspicious order? An order of unusual size, unusual frequency, or outside the usual no- the normal ordering pattern. Okay. Those have to be reported to DEA, so then DEA could do a follow-up. If everyone in the supply chain was abiding by these guidelines, these laws, these regulations, then we wouldn't have the amount of drug going out that we have now, and we would see a reduction in dispensing and a reduction in the number, the amount of quota. 
But until then, until everyone in that supply chain understands that to protect the closed system of distribution, you have to abide by the regs and the laws, we will continue to see diversion in the supply chain and we will continue to see a quota that is, that, that is high. Um, that's no, there's no magic to fixing the opioid problem. It's just abiding by the law within the supply chain, and that'll be a great first step to solving the problem. Well, with that, Mr. Ranazizi, I know you speak, you're very passionate about this topic of the opioid crisis. I know you've spoken to law enforcement professionals as well as healthcare professionals, pharmacists, attorneys, etc. So how can people get a hold of you if they're interested in learning more? They could contact me by email. It's J-R-A-L-C-H-E-M-I-S-T at AOL.com. It's J-R-Alchemist at AOL.com. Well, with that, Mr. Ranazizi, thank you for coming back, returning to the Pharmacy Podcast. We always appreciate your insights, and we'll look forward to speaking with you again soon. Thank you very much, Dr. Albert. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Pharmacy Podcast. My name is Erin Albert, host of Farming Your Career. Of course, today's conversation did not provide any legal advice nor medical advice. If you need the help of an attorney, please find one in your own jurisdiction and have a chat with him or her. We thank Mr. Ranazizi for sharing his expertise and insights with us today. As always, you can find more episodes at iTunes or at PharmacyPodcast.com. You can find me over at Twitter at Aaron L. Albert or at Farming Careers. And of course, at Pharmacy Podcast. Until next time, take care.